This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land. After a week of furious criticism from the coal and gas industries about the Albanese government's planned price caps, the legislation is set to sail through a special sitting of Parliament today. Labor's package, designed to curb soaring power prices, has won the crucial support of the Greens and two crossbenchers in the Senate in a deal which includes new incentives to help households switch from gas to electricity. Political reporter Stephanie Dalzell has more. A parliamentary encore... Politicians are here in Canberra to get the job done. ..with a special one-day sitting to pass legislation for the Albanese government's energy market intervention, which it says will soften price hikes. The plan will see wholesale gas prices capped at $12 a gigajoule for one year, with suppliers then subject to a mandatory code of conduct to provide reasonable prices after that. Labor frontbencher Jason Clare's upbeat about it. Australians want to see action. They want to see their power bills go down. Others less happy to be back in the capital. Nationals MP Barnaby Joyce declaring he's unlikely to back the legislation. I'm very inclined not to uh, support it, yeah. But it won't matter. It's now guaranteed to sail through Parliament after Labor secured the crucial support of crossbench Senator David Pocock and the Greens. The Greens traded their support for a package to help households and businesses switch from gas appliances to electric, but it won't be finalised until next year's federal budget. Tenant Reid from the Australian Industry Group, which represents 60,000 businesses, is pleased the legislation will pass, but warns it's not perfect. We are still going to see some difficult times ahead for energy users. States will be left to cap wholesale coal prices and the federal government's also offering $1.5 billion in power bill relief for vulnerable households. But even with this intervention, Treasury estimates power prices will soar by 47% over the next two years. A price intervention can't last forever and it shouldn't. What will need to happen is that shorter-term interventions hand over as and when they can to longer-term transition. The opposition and the gas industry argue the price caps will drive the cost of gas up further in the long term as companies withdraw supply from the domestic market. Ian McFarlane is the chief executive of the Queensland Resources Council and sits on the board of energy giant Woodside. He's told 7.30 this plan won't provide household relief. Putting a price on gas will have no impact on the price of electricity going forward. And he's making it clear the sector's uncomfortable with having any further regulation of the gas market. To have a government thinking that they can set those prices is incomprehensible. But the Grattan Institute's Alison Reeve argues the intervention's warranted. All of these gas companies were profitable when gas, you know, this time last year when gas was selling for well under what the, the price cap is, and I am fairly sure that they will continue to be profitable. That's Alison Reeve from the Grattan Institute, ending that report by Stephanie Dalzell. A new scientific report has concluded the Northern Territory Government's plan to tap water from the aquifer under the Beetaloo Basin for new cotton and gas fracking industries could create an environmental catastrophe. It's found the government has overestimated the amount of water that can be provided to industry without damaging rivers and springs. However, as Jane Barden reports, the government's defending the plan. 
Des Barrett's Caravan Park depends on tourists visiting Mataranka's stunning hot springs. They're filled with crystal clear water that's been filtered through the limestone of the Beetaloo Basin's Cambrian Aquifer over millions of years. The river system is absolutely pristine, but it's totally dependent on permanent water. He fears the NT government's new plan to give out lots of water to new gas and cotton industries planned for the Beetaloo Basin south of Darwin could damage the springs. If we don't have the hot springs and the beautiful green environment we've got here, no one's going to stop in Mataranka. Indigenous traditional owners, including Ray Dixon from the Basin South, are also worried. Doesn't matter you're fracking, you're still using water, you're doing horticulture, you're sucking that water from the aquifer, I'm, I'm downstream. A study of the government's Beetaloo water planning, commissioned by the NT Environment Centre, has concluded they're right to be concerned. Author RMIT hydrologist Professor Matthew Curl says the government's plan to give out 40% of the water it thinks flows into the southern part of the aquifer each year from rainfall isn't based on enough information. That's partly because it's modelled the last 50 years which were wetter rather than the last 100 years which were drier. The problem with this is that the recharge to these aquifers is very limited and it seems to occur very, very infrequently. So the last really major recharge event was probably in the 1970s when we had a really wet year in 1974. So if you're allowing every year extraction of quite substantial volumes of groundwater, you may not be getting any recharge for, for decades. And in the meantime, you're effectively depleting significant amounts of storage uh, from the aquifer system. They could actually be effectively locking in the mining of groundwater over long periods of time. The government's executive director of water resources is Amy Dysart. We're not mining the storage over the long term. We know that there's a lot of recharge in that area and our modelling is on the conservative side of those recharge estimations. The Environment Centre is so worried by Professor Curl's conclusions, it's calling for federal government intervention. There's no sign of that. But in a statement, the Federal Environment Department says the government is expanding its powers so that any gas fracking projects which are likely to have a significant impact on water resources will soon need Commonwealth as well as NT approval. Jane Barden reporting. Provisional results in Fiji's election have the country's incumbent government in the lead to win another term. Frank Bainimarama's Fiji First Party is on top with 45% of votes counted from about 60% of polling stations. The Fiji Elections Office had a glitch with its counting system overnight, meaning results were temporarily taken offline, but counting will continue today, as Marion Farr reports from Suva. After almost six months of political campaigning, Fijians like Davina Deepika have finally had their say. I feel proud of myself. Actually, maybe my vote will make a count. She emerged from the ballot box with a sticker congratulating her on voting and one key wish. We just need a stable government who can look after the people from top to bottom. We need good governance. At least that's what I believe. People's Alliance leader Sidibeni Rambuka is hoping the results will go his way. So I'm hoping for a uh, flood of votes in our favour. The former Prime Minister 
is famed for leading two military coups in 1987, which caused many Indo-Fijians to leave the country. He's been campaigning to win back their confidence, saying there'll be no racial bias if he's elected. They should be pretty certain that I mean what I said then and what I say now that they are safe. The message hit home with 34-year-old Davina Deepika, who is Indo-Fijian. Even if from Bukawins, I have no issues. I know whatever he has done in 87, long gone, long forgotten, we need to move past that. That's what I can say to everyone else as well. But to win, Mr Rambuka will have to topple incumbent Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. The Fiji First leader seized power in a military coup in 2006 and has won two democratic elections since. With his wife and granddaughter by his side as he cast his vote, Mr Bainimarama declared he was confident but wouldn't be drawn on his main opponent. Thank you. I don't have any comments on that. Thank you. I don't know which my time. Suva resident Victor Fatiaki voted in the same polling station as the incumbent PM. Uh, this is a very crucial election for the country of Fiji, and I believe everybody is trying their best to come and uh, vote. For some, that meant a lot of travel. Fijian seasonal worker Lithe Sivu flew from far north Queensland to her home in Suva to cast her vote, with Fiji's rising cost of living top of her mind. A family back home have been complaining about the high food prices. Everything has been skyrocketing and we really feel sorry for them because there's no money, no work. But not everyone felt compelled to participate, with roughly 60% of registered citizens turning up to vote. How that will affect the final result is unclear and counting will continue today. Marion Farr in Suva. At least four people have died after a small boat carrying migrants from France to the UK struck trouble in the English Channel. Dozens more were hauled out of the water in a dramatic rescue involving a, tr a fishing trawler, the British Coast Guard and the French Navy. The UK government is promising tougher policies to deter people from making the perilous journey, a trip that around 45,000 people have embarked on this year. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. At around three in the morning, in the freezing cold waters of the English Channel, a horrific scene was unfolding. An inflatable dinghy carrying around 50 asylum seekers was capsizing. Dozens of people were in the water. A Coast Guard helicopter shone a light on the chaotic scene as the migrants were hauled to safety over the side of a fishing trawler. The skipper later described the rescue as like something out of a war movie. In the House of Commons, the UK Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, expressed what she described as profound sadness at the loss of life. Mr Speaker, these are the days that we dread. Crossing the Channel in unseaworthy vessels is a lethally dangerous endeavour. It is for this reason, above all, that we are working so hard to destroy the business model of the people smugglers. Evil, organised criminals who treat human beings as cargo. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has this week announced a new five-point plan aimed at deterring asylum seekers from crossing the channel in small boats. Included are measures that would prevent anyone arriving by boat from being able to remain in the UK. Once they're removed, they would lose the right to re-enter or be resettled in Britain. Tamsin Baxter is from the Refugee Council. 
one of the organisations that have condemned the plans announced by the government. If we don't look at the, the reasons people come to the UK, uh, the reasons they're fleeing their countries of origin in the first place and how we can get people here safely, I'm, I'm really sorry to say I don't think this will be the last tragedy that we see involving small boats at sea. Those who were rescued from the icy cold waters were incredibly lucky. Government sources have told local media that 43 people were saved. But still, tens of thousands continue to make this dangerous journey. Fabiola Rickenbush says she saw another two boats leaving France after this latest tragedy. This morning on my way to go shrimping, I saw two dinghies, she said, which were unfortunately overflowing with migrants, with children. Really, it's sad. I hope they will arrive safely because what hurts my heart the most is the babies, the children. It's really miserable and it happens every day. The fact that anyone would consider making this dangerous journey in freezing conditions underlies what a challenge it will be for the Sunak government to stop the boats crossing the channel. In London, this is Steve Kinane reporting for AM. Armed with spiked clubs and sticks, Indian and Chinese troops have clashed on their disputed border zone, leading to concerns that tensions will escalate between the two countries. Soldiers on both sides were injured in the first major confrontation since a deadly skirmish more than two years ago. Meanwhile, India is testing a nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile, which is one of its most lethal. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports from New Delhi. The Tawang region is nestled high up in the picturesque snow-capped Himalayas. And while this place is one of the most scenic in the world, India's Defence Minister Rajnath Singh says it's also the location of the latest clash between India and China in their disputed border zone. On the 9th of December 2022, People's Liberation Army troops tried to transgress the border in the Tawang sector and unilaterally changed the status quo. The ensuing face-off led to a physical scuffle in which the Indian Army bravely prevented the PLA from crossing into our territory and forced them to return to their posts. Since the 1962 India-China War, the more than 4,000-kilometre border between the two countries has been in dispute. India claims the Tawang region as its own on the east of the country, while China says it's a part of South Tibet, which it claims. Beijing says Indian troops illegally crossed the border to block a routine Chinese patrol. But the country's foreign ministry spokesman, Wang Wenbin, says the border is now stable. We hope that the Indian side will work with China to move in the same direction, earnestly follow through the important consensus reached by the leaders of the two countries, strictly implement the spirit of the relevant agreements signed by the two sides and work with China to jointly maintain peace and tranquility of the China-India border areas. This is the first escalation between India and China since a deadly skirmish along the border in 2020. And Professor of Chinese Studies Srikant Kondapali at the Jawaharlal Nehru University says this is a sign things could get worse. Actually, there is a problem at the ground level because they have not resolved the territorial dispute. Big statements can be made, but when when it comes to the bilateral relations, it's a different kettle of fish. 
Experts like Professor Kondapali say India wasn't happy when the Australian government was silent about the previous border clash. But this incident will strengthen ties between the two countries, trying to depend less on China. At a time when there are issues like this, this would suggest to a more bonhomie between Australia and India. This is Avani Dias in New Delhi, reporting for AM. The local government watchdog in New South Wales has slammed a regional council for its cavalier handling of a multi-million dollar deal involving a Korean-backed ethanol company. The investigation found the council in Moama, in the state's southwest, lent almost a million dollars to an insolvent company, despite evidence that it had no technical skill. The transaction included a $100,000 deposit into a mystery bank account, money which has since been recovered. Viktor Petrovich reports. On the outskirts of Moama in rural southwest New South Wales is an empty paddock. As you can see, it's full of weeds. Kylie Berryman's grain farm is up the road. The Murray River Council bought the paddock for $1.2 million in 2018 for a proposed ethanol plant. A few months later, it lent almost a million dollars to the company that wanted to build it. I didn't think that council was realistically in the business of giving people money to start businesses. Certainly wouldn't lend me $900,000 to start a gumboot factory or something out here. Four years on, the New South Wales Office of local government has delivered a scathing report into the deal which it found involved multiple breaches of the law. It's confirmed the council agreed to buy the land for the project while the company Dongman Greentech was insolvent and that $100,000 of its $900,000 loan was deposited into a mystery bank account without invoices or receipts after the company requested startup capital. The report also says... Council had become the proponent's banker. Council's processes were at best ad hoc and cavalier. The ABC can reveal the mystery bank account belonged to the Korean company director's son. His father, company director Sung Ho Ju, has confirmed the $100,000 was used to pay his son's wages. I, I just can't imagine how there are any circumstances which would justify a local government authority using ratepayers' money in this fashion. Jeffrey Watson is a director at the Centre for Public Integrity and says there could be a case for police investigation. The sums at stake are large and some of them are just at the moment unable to be explained. The report found much of the failings at the council in Moama had already occurred at a neighbouring council in Daniloquin. And the report adds that the council had also lent money to the company for a plant that never eventuated. The proponents had approached other councils in New South Wales and Victoria to support the establishment of an ethanol plant. Each had not proceeded. The Murray River Council referred itself to the Independent Commission Against Corruption and Police in 2021 after a confidential review called for a formal investigation. So far, neither police nor the ICAC has agreed to investigate. In a statement, the Murray River Council says none of the investigations conducted so far have found any evidence of criminal or fraudulent activity. 
It says there have been extensive efforts within the council to identify procedural shortcomings. Resident Kylie Berryman says she still has questions. Where did the money go? Where do we go from here to get somebody to look into these bank accounts to see where this money is gone? That's grain farmer Kylie Berryman ending that report from Victor Petrovich with additional reporting by Charlotte King and Andy Burns. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Federal Parliament's been recalled today to pass the government's caps on coal and gas. Sometime next year, it'll hopefully start saving households money. Today, Alison Reeve from the Grattan Institute on whether the government's going far enough to reduce our energy costs. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.